And I'd taken out my notebook and, of course, I was meant to be writing something amazing around climate change. And I was penning some maudlin poem about some sort of (laughs) the state of the world. And all of a sudden I heard this I heard this amazing sound. And it was a sound that it's I still to this day, I find it difficult to describe just how big an impact that had all my preconceived ideas about the world all my the sort of conceptual relationship with the world was just blown out the window by this sound. And it was the sound of the didgeridoo. If you wanted to engage someone's thinking, maybe persuade them about something or change their mind even. Build your case with words, present data, show them a picture or a video. What about playing them a sound? The power of music to movers is very well known, of course, but what about sounds in addition to music? Mike Edwards is a passionate advocate of the power of audio to engage and affect people's perceptions and opinions. He's made the exploration of the use of sound in this way his life's work and the focus of his business, Sound Matters. In this episode, Mike talks with me about how he became a passionate audiophile and some of the ways in which Sound Matters has helped move forward debate on several issues, particularly the environment, climate change and resilience. I started off by asking Mike how he would describe himself. I suppose there are four key keywords that would describe me and in no particular order. So I I started off as an academic. So academic, I see myself as a bit of a failure um, because I wasn't as successful or I'm not a successful academic. I'm a lover of ambiguity because I think in the, the world as it is, ambiguity is the key to sort of identifying, um, the processes that are shaping the world. I think ambiguity is key. And also, I'm definitely a dreamer. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't have sort of given up um, an academic career in order to pursue the life I'm leading. So I, I dream both in terms of creating a better future, but also in terms of living a life which is perhaps a bit ambiguous. Okay. So let's just where... let's just backtrack a bit. So academic yeah. what what field would you say you were you were from? Okay. So I I'm an environment well I've always worked in environmental issues but my my research my PhD was on climate change and specifically the links between climate change and human security. Right. Everything from health through to is it going to lead to war? It was a joyful PhD. <laughs> Obviously, a very upbeat. Um, yeah. But you said you were a failed academic. Why, why failed? Well, because I suppose I could never buy into the publish or perish mentality. Well, the thing is, I did buy into the publish or perish mentality, but I bought into the perish side oh, of it. Okay. So I... I suppose my my whole reason for going into academia was uh, because I wanted to change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that was it. So whichever way seemed to be the best was the way I wanted to do it. And so it was about demonstrating impact. And for me, I suppose I wanted to use, I wanted to get a, a few credentials, academic credentials behind me so that when I said something, maybe people would listen. Sadly, that's not happening now um in today's world but that was the aim so Mm. academia for me was a springboard which has allowed me to pursue a slightly different path but in terms of academic in with lists of publications i didn't really do that you you still teach now don't you yes yes so i i teach um a number of institutions business school um halt international business school I also teach um, sometimes at University College London and at, yeah, do various visiting lectures right, around right, the, right, the country. Okay. 
So I think I think we'll 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 sort of take the failure uh, label with with a pinch of salt a bit there. That's, that's probably yeah. probably excessive self-deprecation. I would suggest, like knowing what I know about what you've done, ambiguity. Come on, talk to me a bit more about yeah. that. You celebrate ambiguity. Yeah, and this this is an interesting one. This is because of working in climate change, and in a sense, knowing knowing the answers supposedly so i did a lot of research in it as like yep climate change is occurring boom 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 this is what we need to do very simple cause effect and then you need to do something about it i suppose through teaching business students i've come up against very different opinions on climate change and i suppose that's challenged me to to think about um how we how we construct responses how we construct discourses around the issue and so by by embracing ambiguity it's allowed me to hear other people's opinions it's that simple um, right right yeah you know it really is that simple so i say ambiguous because we can't know what the truth is you know we simply can't so being able to to take everything and see it as ambi- ambiguous it's allowed me to start to formulate ideas around these issues which just give you more entry points into how you might be able to find solutions but again for me ambiguity just means the ability to listen yeah and then and as listen. a result then get 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 better get better conversation or as david bohm would have said was you know, listeners would know i'm a big fan of um he was he was very very keen on this idea of dialogue and i know you know you know him as well as somebody who's very yeah. keen to try and get dialogue and in, in particular create environments where people could express very different views but then move Absolutely. on from being entrenched in those views to actually explore each other's ideas and, and maybe find common common points of interest to stuff like that yeah yeah mm. okay yeah. and a dreamer dreamer yeah i suppose everything i've done in my life everything i hope to achieve from you know into the future is based around dreams that we can create uh, uh, a slightly better world. And again, that's an ambiguous statement, but I don't think we're uh, doing our best at the moment. Um, I think the crisis we're facing in so many different walks of life, it's a clear example that we're just not envisioning um, in the way we should. So Dreamer, yeah, is that, that hope that we can come together and and create something better um and people will challenge me what does better mean and yeah that's that's my dream um i don't have to describe what that better is it's in my head but i just i think we're we're not achieving what we're capable of and i don't mean that as technological prowess i mean it more basically that you know living as humans in a more than human world and celebrating those connections. And I suppose that's that's the basis of everything I do. Dreaming that one day we might we might see this more than human world as more than just a resource to exploit, something to celebrate love and be the basis of all the creativity, all the solutions that we we have the capacity to come up with. So that's that's the dream. Yeah. So let's talk about sound because uh, all those things that you've you've just described the the common thread throughout them I would I would suggest uh, uh, in addition to to your interest in the environment and and, and uh, climate sustainability and all those kind of things sound audio is 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 very much your medium if I can I can say that just walk us through your journey though that you went on that that made you realize the the power and the importance of of sound well, it's it's a really again it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question and quite a challenging one. I, th- I suppose, hey, as a kid, I was a very anxious kid, and that anxiety used to manifest manifest as an annoying little voice in my head, which used to tell thing tell me to do things which were outrageous like going to a church and scream blasphemies at God. And, you know, it was an OCD type of thing. So the importance, even from an early age, sound and the idea that you can choose to listen or switch off was, was so important to me because it, it, when the voice was saying nice things, it was wonderful. Life was great. When the voice was telling me that I was a piece of whatever, 
it wasn't a nice thing to hear. So I was, I, from an early age, I was very switched on to both sounds inside and sounds outside. And one of the ways that I used to escape from this annoying little voice in the head was to go to quiet places and listen to nature. Because in a sense, that, that took away that anxiety. So, yeah, listening from an early age was important. And obviously, I was listening to sounds, whether they were internal or external. But what really, what blew my mind was, it was uh, early 90s, and I was doing my PhD, and going slightly crazy, because PhDs, well, definitely back then were designed to drive you crazy. <laughs> so I was, I was sort of writing up and um, I used to find a few beers really useful with the creative process. So I'd gone to this bar um, in Balmain in a suburb of Sydney and I'd taken out my notebook and of course I was meant to be writing something amazing around climate change and I was penning some maudlin poem about some sort of <laughs> the state of the world and all of a sudden I heard this I heard this amazing sound and it was a sound that if I was a if I was a religious or well a religious person I would say it was a sound that was well precipitated an epiphany I'd like all my preconceived ideas about the world, all my the sort of conceptual relationship with the world was just blown out the window by this sound. And it was the sound of the didgeridoo. And it's, I still to this day, I find it difficult to describe just how big an impact that had. Um, and it was a sound that was created by one of Australia's foremost contemporary players, a guy called Charlie McMahon, who I later became very good friends with, performed with. But it was the sound of the didgeridoo, which had such a profound impact on me. Um, it was like, how can how can the sound change almost instantly your relationship with the world? And it did. It was that it was that profound. And so, but that wasn't the end of it, though, was it? Because it wasn't the case of, okay, that's changed me. It, it was the fact that sound can change one made you want to then take that and, and take that to others? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I sort of, I became I became sort of addicted to, to that one particular sound. So the didgeridoo just became my life. Yeah, because you went and learned years. how to, to play it, yeah. Yeah. So, I, And I, how hard I, is that? How hard is it to play a didgeridoo? Well, interestingly, to play it well, I would say is extremely difficult. The problem is, it's quite easy to get the basics. That's why a lot of people don't like the didgeridoo, because all they've heard is poor players who've just mastered circular breathing. Right. So it's like, oh, not the didgeridoo. But when it's played well, which takes a long time to master those techniques or to to become au fait with them it does take time but the thing is um the whole process of learning learning that instrument is around connection it teaches you connection teaches you connection to the instrument but also it requires of you to listen to the world around you because a lot of what didgeridoo playing is about is telling stories and a lot of those stories about the more than human world the land connection to country as Aboriginal people describe it, country, sort of land forms, people, places, animals, plants, um, stories. So you, that's when I started to really realise the power of sound. Because, as you as you'll understand, as a person working on cl on climate change, I'd spent a lot of time trying to change people's hearts and minds through through facts. Mm. That's how we do it. Or that's how science tries to do it. It's like, here are the facts. Of course, you've got to respond. And if you don't, then you're not understanding the facts. So I'd spent a lot of time working in that sort of space. as like, I'm not having much impact here. Those who want to hear what I'm saying are already those who sort of understand the processes yes. I'm describing. So, so you preach to the choir to, there, yeah. But the ones I want to perhaps... I mean, change is not the nicest word in this case, but it's kind of what I wanted to do. There needed to be other ways to engage. 
And bizarrely, the didgeridoo started to be the way I did it. Now, when I started, it was very cack-handed. It would be like I'd go and give a lecture about climate change then whip out the ditch and say, listen to this. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, th- where's the link? Mm. Um, but then, then I started to nuance it a bit and sort of take people on journeys, you know, into, into connection. Because I suppose fundamental to all my work is that ability to connect humans and more than human world, you know, humans, nature, however you want to describe it. We've lost that in, you know, in modern industrial society, I would say we've largely lost that. We, we want to believe we still have that connection, but in many ways we've severed it. And I suppose my love of um, Aboriginal Australia is that that connection is still celebrated. I mean, it's got, it's been undermined. My God, it has. But that's still the basis. Um, so that's what fascinated me is how how you could use how you could use an instrument, but how you could use sound to reconnect people. And as I say, especially in modern industrial society where we're we've lost that. Talk us through then, because that stayed with you, obviously, and then you, you went into to academia and spent some time in academia. Talk us through, though, when you decided, okay, now I'm going to actually take this idea of being able to use sound as a way to engage people in thought processes, and I'm actually going to make a business out of it. That's maybe where the word failure and um, <laughs> dreamer comes in. It was like, well, wh- how am I going to turn this into a business is a, is a great question. The thing is... Um, I came back to the UK and formed formed a band. It was called, well, it was called Digitalis. Digitalis had existed in Australia as a sort of electronic, organic, electronic music act. Came back to the UK and started working with a DJ, uh, Darren Hodson, and a music producer called Harry Code. And I had, again, I had this dream of creating a band which you know, cunningly sort of had an environmental sustainability message underneath. But again, it's just, it's just a bit hackneyed, you know, it's all very well creating music and then putting sort of sounds of nature in, but it, it's not very clever. A bit cheesy, you know, bit, I, bit, bit sort of, bit, bit sort of Bono. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, you can sing a song about how you love nature and everything and put a beat to it, but it's not, it's not, challenging Mm. um it's not as i say it's not very clever so through discussions i mean we called ourselves digitalist the sound of sustainability and you know i used to bang on about how we were connecting people to to the earth um i can imagine how people might have found that a bit right on and and, i mean i'm sure your your heart's in the right place but it does it does come across a bit as a bit a bit too too serious yeah a bit too earnest. Yeah, exactly. Earnest, that's and, the word. Yeah. You know, so Harry and I, we just sat down again over a few beers, over a number of months, over a number of years, and just sort of to think about okay, sound, how, how do you use this sound to, to start connecting people? How do you use sound in a way that makes people literally sit up and listen? And how do you tell a compelling story? And again, this brings in the ambiguity a bit, because what was beautiful, what we started to realize is that you didn't have to be waving banners. You didn't have to be shouting facts at people. You just needed to create soundscapes or pieces of music which told their story. And that, I suppose, was when I started to realize that the power of sound is that Simply, you didn't need words. You just needed to create spaces for people to experience that. And so through discussions, through lectures at, um, I think the first lecture we gave was at Imperial College London and then at University College London, sort of exploring this. We started to get really positive responses because what we were basically providing was a new narrative around sustainability but one which was based around the sounds, the sounds of the world you wanted to hear, the sounds of the world you didn't want to hear. And immediately when you ask people, what sounds do you want to hear? They're the sounds that 
are comforting. They're sounds that tell of flourishing. They're sounds of telling, uh, you know, of a good world. So we started really exploring that. So what sounds are indicative of, say, a sustainable planet, unsustainable? And then tried to use certain acoustic analogies and certain sound engineering techniques to explore that. Like what would population growth sound like through through a compressor or through reverb or through volume? So just trying to use different analogies for some of these processes that were going on. You know, um, biodiversity loss. It's very easy to create a piece of music which is beautifully biodiverse and then you literally pull species out of it and you create a totally different soundscape. Now, that has so much more impact, I feel, than a graph that's just showing species loss, mm-hmm. biodiversity loss, whatever it might be. So, so we- this is a path that, that I suppose other forms of art have also been traveling for, for quite some 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 way you, you get a striking painting that that really really sort of hits people and, and and makes them stop and think whereas somebody giving them all sorts of facts about deforestation or or or, or, or sort of loss of the ozone layer or so forth doesn't quite have that same impact so it, it, it's it's very much a crossover between art and and science and politics um, and, and and sociology I guess is it yeah and it's very true. What we're doing is not new. Like, there's nothing new. Perhaps what's new is the fact that it's an academic and a sound engineer as opposed to a, an individual. Because um, a lot of those art forms are created by individuals who are interested in expressing these issues. Whereas, suppose our USP is the fact two very different people coming together to try and create those art forms or whatever it might be. But absolutely. It's a crossover. It's a systems. I mean, this is one thing we're very clear about now is that it's about creating um, a systems based way of listening to the world. So as you say, art, sciences, politics, economics, sociology, whatever it might be, is to try and explore those links. Because if you think we've created a very mechanistic way of seeing things, I mean, mm. The response to the COVID crisis at the moment is very mechanistic. It's relying on science, hoping that will lead to behavioural change. But we're not exploring how people are reacting to it, whether they're having huge anxiety issues, mental health, they need to get out, they want to break the system, you know, whatever it might be. Sound, what we we feel sound allows that systemic response because every process has a sound mark or a soundscape. And if you can start to analyze which sounds are dominating, which are being hidden, you start to get an idea of the different power dynamics which are at work in, in systems. And mm. I think that's that's what excites me about sound. You know, and when we talk about sound matters, it's not that we're saying it's more important than a visual approach or any other senses, but the fact is we we do tend to forget the power of sound. Um, and I think that's, and importantly, the art of listening. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you give us a couple of examples then of where you've you've actually put this idea into practice? Yeah. So from simple, you know, the simple lectures where we've gone into universities and basically played people, um, sounds that we've created or sounds that we've recorded. So very simple um, approach there. Perhaps the more interesting work has been, we describe, well, sound research and sound business. They're the two main um, areas of work that we're focusing on. And the sound research, a good example of that is the work we've been doing in southern Spain where there's some amazing work going on in a, um, it's called the Alvalal region. Mm. And basically, if you go from Granada across to Murcia, um, there's that area in there, there's some amazing work going on um, on landscape restoration. So we were were invited by two organizations, um, Association Alvalal Common Land, and with the funding of Leopold Bachmann Foundation to explore um, how, how you can restore soundscapes. 
So is there a way of listening to the land and starting to, again, coming back to what I said before, identify the processes that are shaping that land? Because up until now, a lot of landscape restoration, ecosystem restoration is very visually based. But the problem is with that is you can you can create an aesthetically pleasing space so it looks good. But is it actually biodiverse? Is it supporting um, the natural systems, the ecosystems? So what we're looking at, looking, I always fall into what we're hearing at or whatever is. Could you create different systems by designing them around the sounds you want to hear? So the sounds that suggest a biodiverse environment, because you could have something that looks visually bloody awful, sounds amazing, and is actually very biodiverse, um, Mm. a a thriving ecosystem. And what sounds, importantly, what human sounds work in those spaces? So are there sounds which are balanced with those natural processes? Are they in harmony? So these musical, sort of almost musical analogies become planning tools. We are very much involved in project down there. We're working with local schools. We're working with local communities um, to try and get them to listen and to try and get them to talk about the sounds they want to hear. And importantly, we've created um, a musical interface for the soil because in that region, the soil has basically been mined through years of industrial agriculture for olive growing, almond growing. The soil is in many places dead. So what we're trying to do is by creating this musical interface that takes soil, well, health quality indicators and turns them into sounds. We're trying to create installations which engage local people with um, processes that lead to healthier soils and get people to listen to the journey from a sort of a dead soil to a living, vibrant soil. So that's work. Right. So you're not you're not you're not you're not basically designing a, an analytical tool, though. It's not like an oscilloscope where you're saying, okay, well, when you when you, this is the sort of sound wave you get from a dead soil, and then. Uh, we add these things. Does that does that then in, improve improve the soil? You're not you're not losing it as as that sort of you know health meter. No, no and interestingly, it comes back to your point previously about uh, linking the arts and sciences. Um, what we're trying to do is a very a very artistic, uh, creative approach to to that science. So we are taking some of the data. And we are, in a sense, sonifying that data, but not as a way to say this is an analytical tool, more to say this is a way to engage. Um, So it's a loose use of science, but to create something which people can actually engage with. So you're saying to people, you know, if you you allow us, let's represent certain facets of soil in this way with this kind of sound, and they're not very good sounds. And then let's look at some much healthier, growing, developing, thriving, thriving soil. Yes. And that sounds like this. And uh, so people can see the difference. And it's, the, I, I suppose, is, is there an element of what you're trying to inspire people to think, wow, yeah, yeah that's, that's a profound yes. change. Yeah. 100%. 100%. And interestingly, one of the, the common land, the organisation that's very much involved in this, has what it calls four returns, the way it's returning um, sort of economic benefit to the land, where it's returning um, life, both human and natural to the land, but also about returning inspiration. And I think that's what that's what Sound Matters is all about, is, yeah, is basically celebrating. I mean, with this wonderful bloody planet, you know, there's so much beauty still to be, has so much experience i don't know so much life and yet we're generally focusing on the things that taking life away so 100 percent inspiration mm. you you showed me david bohm's book you know this whole idea that creativity is what's behind everything that's not the only kind of, of, of sound that you used in the El Valal project, was it? No, and also um, 
because we've got some great connections down there and one person I really do want to mention here or two people who have facilitated this actually three people um, but Astrid Vargas um, from Inspiration for Action who was she's been wonderful she she believed in us when we didn't believe in ourselves you know in the early stages when we're trying to do this Astrid was very much this is great let's get you out to Spain to do this then um Dietmar Roth who is very much involved in all these projects in that region and of course the Leopold Bachmann Foundation who made it possible but the the other sounds and this is why I mentioned these people because they were able to connect us with some amazing local musicians who were able to work with us on on these projects and again because we're trying to return inspiration we wanted to celebrate the the musical sort of the culture that's there and in a sense the culture that's dying as the land is dying as the soil's dying you're getting these people moving out of the region so our whole pro or thought process was that by celebrating the music by celebrating um the vibrancy of life that's still there by using these musicians again it becomes inspirational for hopefully younger people mm. so we would a lot of that but also recording a lot of the local sounds so we recorded i mean god knows how many sheep we've recorded how many sheep bells you know we could put out many albums of sheep bells um church bells marketplaces random conversations in the streets so again this this idea that soundscapes are important because they they tell a story so we've tried to mix those into tracks again which also some of them use some of the data we've collected so bringing it all together to create a sonic journey to take people on a journey into this region into some of the the problems so we've we've used indicator sounds of resilience which may be um yeah the sounds of bees in a in an almond grove which is being organically uh, cultivated to some of the sounds of sort of vulnerability you know sounds of people moving out of the area older voices rather than younger voices so in using all these these different sounds to tell that to tell that story mm. so I, I get I, I very much get the idea that that um you can you can sort of develop an idea and 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 represent the sound of a, of a, a thriving strong environment this sounds right you know and and mm. if you don't get that it, it doesn't sound right uh, i i have to say as as you were talking there the the, the book that immediately came into my mind was was silent spring by by rachel carson very famous yes. book of course on the environment where she was basically saying that as that when you lost the sound that indicated that things were 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 going wrong um so I, I can get that and say look as we as we do more and as we are inspired to do more then it's going to sound better and, and you'll be able to see that things are improving because we'll start to hear these sounds but do you do it the other way as well and say well because these sounds are missing we have to go and put those sounds back does that inspire actual actions and say well let's go and pull put more sheep out because sheep sound good yeah. is it that or do you not do the reverse yes absolutely um and i think that's that's part of the challenge um and as i say before when we're trying to create a planning tool is to i suppose get communities to participate in thinking about what sounds they want to hear mm. and what processes need to change to enable those sounds to be heard so that comes back to very much that idea of slightly more academic approach to this is like well how do how do you start um building resilient communities and especially now with covid with with climate change biodiversity loss whatever is about thinking thinking about resilience so yes what sounds do you need to introduce into an area what perhaps economic processes are undermining resilience you know what power structures 
um, are undermining that? And can can there be sounds associated with this? And then, I mean, I one of my dreams is to actually imagine being in a studio with a with planners, actually creating um, a soundscape for an area that is either being developed or being regenerated and getting people to actually sound sculpt those those processes right. and so actually, actually using that as a tool. And you mean putting back in the things there that actually make those sounds? You don't mean just sort of putting in speakers and playing the sound? Absolutely, although I, as an installation idea, yes, definitely doing that. But right. no, longer-term plan, yes, actually thinking about how do you get those sounds back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so crucial. Would you say the Alvalal project has, has been a success? And and if so, how do you know? Yes, good question. Um, uh, it's ongoing. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. We've we've received another couple of years funding from Leopold Backman Foundation. So it's it is ongoing. And obviously, there's a, a real temporal element to this because we're looking at impact over a number of years. It's difficult to say, right, this is the impact so far. We're we're monitoring that. What I would say is that we've had a profound impact locally on people's um, willingness to listen to their their environment you know that that may sound literally sound quite a passive response but actually getting people to start engaging with sound in a new way has been i would say a real impact a real success also the fact that we're starting to increase our longer term monitoring um sort of processes getting school kids to start going out recording the sounds of the local environment thinking about what changes they're hearing that's a for me that's a really important um impact also um i suppose starting to help local people as i say local planners to start even engaging with this, to start listening to some of what we've what we've created, again, um, yeah, it's it's changing people's perceptions. Mm. So I can't, sadly, I can't say yes, we've restored this amazing landscape. Boom! This because of sound. One thing I can say is we work. There's a particular farm we work with in that area where we have been much more engaged at a local scale working sort of on the soils in that in that farm and again they've they've become very interested in how sound can help them start to restore restore certain landscapes so yeah it's as with all of these things i'd love to be able to say yeah we've done this is clear evidence i see it as a process of starting to get people a to listen and they are and B, to start thinking about um, how how sound can be more used more as a planning tool mm. in those restoration projects or the, those projects that are already engaged with. You also work with what one might want to call mainstream business as well. You have clients in, in the world of business, don't you? Can you give us an example from there? Yeah, um, I mean this this is a much better one for demonstrating actual impact. Um, so we've worked with JLL, um, big um, big corporation, worldwide corporation that works a lot in estate management, and they have been very they've been struggling with engaging uh, stakeholders and staff with issues around climate change sustainability it's not because the the company hasn't been very much interested in this but i suppose the challenge that the sustainability team had was communicating a message which would get senior buy in for certain certain specific aspects of their I suppose, mainstreaming agenda. What did they really want to do to get change to occur? And they had one particular meeting where they wanted to engage senior managers with the need to to start using science-based targets on climate change. So some really specific stuff. And they had looked at it engaging with um, 
cartoonists, various other creatives to try and get this message across. And they invited us in to to look at if we could come up with a sound piece which would take yeah take staff on a journey into i suppose what jll would sound like if if they did go down the sustainability path and embrace it wholeheartedly and if they didn't um so we we created a sound piece six minute sound piece which was all about taking staff on this journey and by all accounts it had yeah a profound profound impact it was played at a senior management forum in vienna and i'm not saying it was a result of that but shortly after or recently jl jll have embraced this um process of using science-based targets to develop its climate change program and from talking to to members of staff that the sound piece apparently had a really, really profound impact. And what what was in the sound piece? What did what did it sound like? Yeah, it's it was basically sounds of the world since the 1950s, when a lot of construction really took off, post-war construction. The sound of some of the things that are happening in the world at the moment. There were sounds of climate change, sounds of the impacts of climate change. Against the US nuclear missile submarine, threat of war will rise as people fight for resources. Forest fires, um, glacial melt, whatever it might be. Fire has already destroyed nearly 97,000 square miles. And taking people into a sort of quite dystopian view of the sound of the future, of this is what will happen or could happen if you don't don't embrace sustainability. And then we rewound that track. And started on the path of when sustainability was embraced. We have an opportunity to make an agreement that will make our children and our grandchildren proud. So the sounds of flourishing communities, flourishing urban spaces, the sound of children playing, and using sound to to show people what this uh, more flourishing future could be like. I think what really happened there was that it became an entry point. It opened up discussion. Coming back to what I said about ambiguity in the beginning, it wasn't... It, the sound piece wasn't saying you've got to do this you're evil if you don't it was more about this is the future what the future could sound like if you if you do take action and i suppose that's what potentially worked and could work in the corporate setting is that the last thing business leaders need at the moment is to be told that they're evil wrongdoers you know with all the challenges that are facing them and i think again what we've shown is that sound allows people, it opens a discussion. And this is what I think worked for JLL, was that it wasn't the sustainability team coming in with their agenda. It was more saying, look, we've created this. How do you feel? What does it make you feel? What do you think? And through playing that, it opened up a discussion which facilitated a real impact. What about the future then, Mike? Where are you going to go from here? And what are your ambitions for maybe how sound could be used even more to sort of forward the, the things you're thinking about? I suppose our, our mission is to get people to listen. I mean, if, if one was to come up with a mission statement, it's like sort of helping the world listen to listen. You know, how do we, how do we actually start listening again? And I think 
just look around you. Everyone's got headphones on. We're, we're blocking out the sounds of the world. We don't see people walking around with blindfolds because they want to see the world. You know, okay, we're going to see people wearing masks, but that's a different <laughs> issue. But, um, you know, this idea that we, yeah, we literally block out one of our senses and listen to some compressed music, which is, is stopping you from from engaging, from understanding the world. So, you know, we, we really want to use use the work we're doing to show people to get them to really start to listen, listen to one another. I mean, if you think about every crisis we're facing, it's a crisis of the inability to listen. We're not listening to each other. We're not listening to the world. So that's for us where we want to go. We want to do that through research, basing a lot of what we do on the fact that we've actually gone to places to listen and to think about the processes that are shaping those soundscapes. But then really, and I suppose this is something which I find challenging, I've always, as an environmentalist, I've always been, you know, anti-corporate, this and that, you know, as I say, evil wrongdoers. And I'm, 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 this is the ambiguity, I'm changing. Um, and what I'd love to do is work with businesses, work with corporate leaders to explore how sound can connect people so that we can actually come up with some solutions to these problems because business is absolutely essential in this you know it's it's not about well we can see what happens when a system collapses in an unplanned fashion we're living through it at the moment so how can how can we use sound how can we use the process of listening to create a managed transition to what i was talking about at the start of this to this better world however we envision it. Brilliant. Well, we're running out of time, but just to finish off and very much minded by your your call to listen more to the world, can you give a specific tip to people listening, something that they, they might do you know, today or tomorrow to help listen to the world better? It's an interesting one. And I, I honestly think the best thing is to go on a sound walk. So literally go out for a walk with the sole intent of listening. I mean, again, if you could go out with someone who could lead you, then I would suggest definitely maybe maybe blindfolding and being led around so that you actually listen to the world. You become very attentive and attuned to, to the sounds because basically they're your survival mechanism, hearing. So literally go out and and open your ear, unplug your ears, stop running with your headphones in, you know, and definitely stop cycling with your headphones, but go out with the sole purpose of hearing the world and engage, think about, think about the stories those sounds are telling. You know, when you, people, it's been fascinating, the last few days I've been out recording and people have been saying, oh, what are you recording? And I'm, I'm, like, I'm recording the sounds of lockdown. And all of a sudden, a bit, people are like, oh, yeah, there are more birds. It's like there aren't more birds. They haven't all suddenly started breeding. Well, they are breeding because it's spring, but it's not like there are more birds. It's just you can hear the bloody things. Mm. So, you know, we've created through this lockdown, through human activity being sort of silenced, we've created this hi-fi world where we can hear all these sounds. And people are celebrating that. That's the one thing more than anything. People say, oh, mm. the quiet. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, we were talk, talking about you because you live you live not far from Gatwick, don't you? We were saying about you. Yeah, you've, you, you're enjoying the, the 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 quiet from the lack of the planes. Would you Would you also suggest maybe that people may have a go at recording themselves? Just go to a place and sit and switch their smartphone on, and get it to record what's around them. It's funny. That's exactly the second thing. Was like actually start recording because in the same way that we go out and we take photos. And we don't think twice about taking a photo, but how often do we hear a sound and think, oh, I must capture that. So we've all got, a majority of us now got uh, smartphones. We can, we've got perfectly good, um, you know, recording equipment in our pockets all the time. So start recording sounds, keep a journal of sounds. Again, loads of apps that you can do that. And again, by, by recording the sounds, you become much more attentive. It's like a photo you take time 
to think about how you want to frame it. I took a picture of a butterfly at the weekend. It took me about half an hour chasing this bloody thing around the field and then got that shot. But same with sounds. Start chasing sounds. The other day, I was up on the Ashdown Forest, heard a cuckoo, recorded it. But as soon as you're recording it, you connect to it. And again, that's what this is all about. It's connection. Mm. Because if you've got headphones on, you're too bit. We're all too bloody busy. We don't listen. We don't listen as a, to, to the voices in our head, which is a good thing in many ways. But we don't give ourselves space. And so your point there about getting out and recording, 100%. And, you know, the wonderful thing is, again, this is the amazing thing about technology. You know, we've got these tools to do that. You don't need to go out with, you know, a massive great bag of equipment. That's not the point here. It's just capturing those those sounds and then as i say play them back there's nothing more beautiful than getting up at five o'clock hearing the dawn chorus and then later in the day when you're a bit stressed stressed or listening to that again so yeah all part of the process of reconnecting Thanks to Mike for taking the time to talk with me, and to Mike and his colleague Harry Code for allowing us to use extracts from the Alvalal and JLL projects, plus some of Mike's own didgeridoo music. That was him playing at the beginning of the episode. If you would like to know more about Mike or Harry's work or Sound Matters, you'll find links in the show notes as usual. Also, I can strongly recommend Mike's idea of going on a sound walk. I've been applying his advice of stopping and really listening to the sounds around me when I've been walking recently through the wooded common close to where we live, and I find it really does give a heightened experience of the area. And on that point, I really do need to say thanks for listening. I'm Paul Gisby, and this has been a Talking Leaders production. We work with leaders who want to be heard, understood, and to build trust. Goodbye.